Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. This episode of the Retail Exchange is brought to you in association with Inkpact. Make your customer journey more human with scalable, effective personal marketing that connects your brand with customers, one handwritten, personalized note at a time. Putting human connection at the center of your CRM and loyalty programs. Visit inkpact.com today to learn more and to order your sample note card. Inkpact. Real. Human. Connection. Hello, I'm Mark Faithful. Welcome to the latest episode of the interview from the Retail Exchange podcast. Pollution, high carbon footprints and overproduction in the apparel and retail industry are rapidly going out of fashion. To achieve a more sustainable world, the industry must become more sustainable. One brand doing just that is UK children's wear brand, Frugi. Its approach to sustainable fashion has quickly propelled the brands and its message to growth. But while making fashion sustainable is on trend, its commitment to replacing the pursuit of profit with a truly ethical purpose has been a sustained journey. This year, it celebrates its 18th birthday. Founded in 2004 by wife and husband Lucy and Kurt Jusen after they struggled to find sustainable children's wear, Today, the Cornwall-based brand is stocked by more than 550 retailers globally in 30 countries. In May, it became the first children's wear brand to join the Circular Textiles Foundation, an organisation that helps brands and manufacturers ensure that clothing is designed to be suitable for recycling. In this episode of the interview series, I sit down in conversation with its CEO, Sarah Clark, to explore how sustainable fashion has changed, the brand's plan for growth, what a sustained approach to business growth looks like, how to better influence and empower customers to live more sustainably, and how it can replace the pursuit of profit and to reflect on her first year in post. Sarah, welcome. I wonder whether you can tell us a little bit about Frugi to start with. Yes, certainly. Thank you for having me. Uh, Frugi, we are 18 years old this year, actually. We're a Cornish-based brand uh, that was originated by a husband and wife who who were fed up. They sort of thought, well, why should all these ethical, sustainable clothes be so drab and boring? Uh, Hessian linen, all this kind of stuff. So actually it was made by a couple who wanted to show that you could be both sustainable and ethical, but also be fun and very child-oriented. So very playful colours, lots of sort of fun details. Um, and also give back. So they really wanted to show that you could be a profitable business, but still give back to charity. So that's how Frugi was born, from a, a very brave husband and wife team. And here we are, 18 years later, we're in 550 retailers across 30 countries, uh, and doing very well in, in the likes of Marks and Spencers, Next, John Lewis, uh, and also with a, a sort of big direct business as well. And can you tell us a bit about when you joined the business? I actually joined during lockdown uh, and Cornwall was notoriously hard uh, in order to find somewhere to live. So I was actually living in a student house, <laughs> probably the first CEO to live in a student house in Falmouth uh, and actually trying to run the business from lockdown until we until restrictions eased and we were able to get back into the office. Um, but it's been an extraordinary 15 months, as you can imagine, uh, with lots of weird things to anniversary and, and lots of highs and lows along the way. And I think you said you're living a dual life now between Cornwall and King's Cross. Yes, probably living lots of people's dreams. So I get to dabble a little bit in the high life of London, but also wake up to a beautiful sea view uh, and get to enjoy the countryside at the weekends. In terms of what you've done since you started, as you said, it was an interesting time to join. I, I, I'm sure a lot of other retailers uh, will mirror that. You've had 
15 months in, in the job. What are the main changes that you've implemented or, or the main things you've been looking to transform while you've been there? So Frugi, I mean, I'm, I'm a brand builder. That's my DNA. And actually the reason I joined Frugi is because I thought it was such a special brand. Um, but one of the things we've been doing over the last 15 months is really strengthening our brand manifesto and proposition and what that stands for internally and externally. But it's really about focusing on the fact that people should be buying less and they should be buying better. And I think people now have the appetite and we need to be brave enough to giving these big, bold messages as a brand. So we've been doing a lot of brand work. Uh, we've also been working on our circularity programs. So although our raw materials have always been meticulously sourced, got certified end-to-end -end cotton, recycled polyester, actually the best thing we can do uh, is to keep things in circulation. So once we have bought them, we have to sort of keep them in circulation. So we've been working very closely with the Circular Textile Foundation on circular design and how to make things fully reusable, recyclable. Um, but we've also been, I've been working over the last 15 months on accelerating our rental programs with partners such as the Little Loop and Higher Street, uh, and also repair patches, repair tape. So anything that can actually keep the product in circulation for longer, that's been a lot of our, our sort of brand focus over the last 15 months. Um, from a commercial point of view, I'm a big believer in Omnichannel. So I opened our first shop in Somerset, our first non-corner shop, should I say, in, uh, in Somerset in November. Uh, and really that's obviously the start of us getting into brick and mortar and bringing together a more physical experience for the brand, which I think is incredibly important. So that first door is going to be the, the first door of more as time goes on? Yes, certainly. Uh, some of it will be our own owned brick and mortar. Some of it will be pop-ups. Uh, obviously, we have some uh, concessions within our larger retail partners. But the beauty of, of obviously owning the space is it allows us to educate consumers. Uh, I think the consumer is very confused around apparel and sustainability and what organic cotton even means. Uh, so it's a, it's a really lovely space, the one that we've created so far, uh, which also got shortlisted for Draper's Sustainable Store Awards uh, this year, which I was delighted with. But educate consumers, bring together the community, uh, have an area where kids can play, have events that are sort of child-centric. So we've had, you know, reading clubs and all that sort of, all that sort of thing going on. Um, but I think, you know, bringing the brand experience to life, uh, a brand like Frugi really deserves that. It's got lots of stories to tell. The company's obviously got plenty of experience in terms of sustainability of clothing and, and the development of that. You just mentioned the store and the shortlisting in the awards. So how did you approach making sure that the bricks and mortar match the brand values of the clothing? Well, we put a huge amount of time and thought and energy. We've got a brilliant uh, visual merchandiser uh, who really sort of whipped our suppliers and wouldn't, wouldn't accept anything but the best. So we have uh, fully cardboard, recyclable, reusable modules throughout the store, which really reduces waste. We can turn the store around endless times without wasting anything in terms of the modules. Uh, we have everything from plant-based bean bags through to recirculated hot air to reduce our energy usage, uh, obviously energy uh, sensitive lighting, but we've put a lot of thought and care into how we've laid everything out and the fact that we can move things around and recycle pieces without having to sort of constantly create new. Uh, and I think that's what really piqued Draper's attention with the, with the uh, nomination. You've obviously mentioned that the store and also the work you've been doing around um, developing the ethical side of the business and, and taking it even further. 
clearly there's a lot going on in retail at the moment. I'm sure there are any number of different things you could have looked at because of the number of sort of headwinds and challenges there are. But why were they the key priorities when you stepped in? I think all good CEOs know that uh, retail lives by being up and down, uh, and that's that's very normal. Uh, I would say that having this amount of things come together at once is abnormal in terms of macro factors, cost of living crisis the war, global factors. So I think this is a, it's, it's quite an extreme period, but it's quite normal for retail to have ups and downs. And the always the action within that is to focus on brand, focus on your core and strengthen that to sort of weather the storm and come out in a better place. Uh, so I guess not only would my natural brand and marketing DNA take me there as a first step anyway, but as soon as we're facing into headwinds, the best thing that we can do is talk more about the brand uh, and actually invest uh, for the longer term so that consumers understand why they would buy us, uh, even if there are fewer purchases in the next six to 12 months. It's interesting you say that because if you look at the history of retail, it's notoriously volatile and you see huge chains rise and fall. And if you look at any period of time that that's happened, and yet any period we're in, sometimes it feels as if the retail industry is taking that as the anomaly, where actually volatility is the norm, really, isn't it? A hundred percent. I think uh, we were having a discussion. We're very lucky. We're owned by a private equity house that's B Corp certified, which is quite unusual for private equity. Um, but we, we chose partners who understood our values and shared them. And I think that was also important because I, I myself know, as you say, that retail goes up and down. Uh, and the worst thing you can do is abandon your core values and, and the brand that you're trying to build during those periods. Um, so certainly this, this quite, is quite extreme in terms of the number of circumstances that have come together, but will always be weathering storms and the brands that come out the other side are those that have really invested in their purpose and what they mean. And talking about private equity, there's a sign of the times about investment in ethical consumerism. How did you square the circle in terms of ensuring, again, that that met the brand values? And also, would you expect to see more of that in retail going forwards? So I can't take the credit for choosing True as partners. That was definitely the founder, Lucy, uh, was obviously was approached by several partners and was very mindful in who she chose. Uh, and as I said, True are actually quite unique in their B Corp certification. Uh, and that was definitely important to her. Uh, as we move forward, you know, we've always given 1% of turnover, so not profit, turnover to charity. And that uh, was actually locked in as part of the contract because it's something which we believe in, which Lucy believes in as a founder. Uh, and I think it's very important that we, even in tough times, again, stand by those commitments that we've made. Um, so I, you know, I'd, I'd sort of say to all small businesses out there, I think there is a lot of energy at the moment for investing in sustainable small businesses but also make sure that you're very clear with your partners where your no misses, what your sort of true mandatories are, uh, because there will always be good times and bad times, but you need to make sure that you, you can continue to operate in the way that you choose. Fashion has been rightly criticised often for the fact that it is an industry that promotes waste effectively, particularly on the fast fashion side. How are you seeing the industry responding more widely and in terms of the consumer demand and what they're looking for, obviously they're getting more knowledgeable as time goes on. How are you seeing that develop? Well, I'm, I'm sort of a bit glass half empty a little bit on this one, uh, which is probably a strange thing to say, given that I feel very optimistic about Frugian and about our future. Um, but I think for things to really change, we really need a level of regulation. 
So if I look at the apparel sector in particular, you know, we, we know that one lorry of clothes are dumped into landfill every second. We know that we're responsible for 15% of CO2 emissions. It's higher than shipping. And that's frankly disgusting. Uh, it's great that lots of companies have started to take lots of proactive measures to improve that for the apparel business. But I do see quite a lot of tick box marketing exercises that are going on. Uh, and I also see a lot of people adding to consumer confusion. So if I draw a parallel with where we've got to with food, uh, we've got to the stage where actually organic is a certified term for food. We obviously have provided consumers very easy information in terms of color coding, front of packaging to understand how good the certain product is. Uh, and we're actually much better also thinking about household waste. The apparel industry is light years away from that still it feels um, and we've actually we, we could continue to add to consumer confusion by not having an actually certified term for organic so until legislation comes in i think it'll be very hard uh, to keep you know to hold brands um, to their commitments uh, and i look at the new york fashion act which is you know, a great example of new york taking a proactive measure to say that all companies over 100 million have to audit 50 percent of their supply chain um, that's fantastic but we obviously need for that to be consistent in order for there to be a standard that consumers understand and recognize and that they can easily shop and feel that they're making the right choice for them. It's interesting you say that because at the World Retail Congress London Summit, which is a sister event to Retail Week Live, one of the points was made that while grocery is not perfect, as you said, organic is a term. People can look at air miles because their asparagus is coming from Kenya. They can decide whether they actually want to buy that or not. There are a number of relatively simple things they can do to make a consumer decision or an ethical decision. And, and the point was made, why does clothing not have something on the label with some sort of indication of how ethical and sustainable it is, which is easy for consumers. So if they pick up a T-shirt, they have actually got some idea of how it got there and whether that meets their brand values. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I, I do live with the optimistic hallucination that we'll get there, that people will be able to turn over a tag and understand as easily as they do on food the choice that they're making. Uh, but as I said, that has to come with regulation. Uh, not that I'm here to sort of bash anyone, but if I look very specifically at cotton, which is obviously very close to Frugi's heart, as I've said, organic cotton isn't actually a, a fully certified term and, you can, and, and actually organic can be used uh, quite flagrantly without the sort of right um, credentials behind it. There's even a better cotton initiative, which intuitively to a consumer, you would think, I want to buy better cotton. Actually, that better cotton is, is more from a fair trade with the farmers and, a, and a, a wages point of view and actually has nothing to do. It's not, it's not organic, it has nothing to do with environmental factors. So even the fact that those kind of phrases exist uh, regularly within the apparel industry shows why the consumer is confused and doesn't realize the choices they're actually making. This episode is brought to you by Inkpact, humanizing brands through handwritten notes. Retailers are frustrated that after all the time and money they spend on their marketing, it risks getting lost in the noise. They're frustrated by customers spending with competitors after all their hard work, and they're overwhelmed by the cost and complexity of identifying the channels which really work. This sound familiar? Inkpact helps brands build real relationships, increase their customer lifetime value, and engage customers at scale through the power of handwritten notes. With Inkpact, you can create scalable, 
effective personal marketing that connects your brands with customers, one genuinely handwritten, personalized note at a time. With a 99% open rate, Inkpact stands out from the noise. It's why Inkpact is loved by brands like John Lewis, Brewdog, Sweaty Betty, Me and M, and their customers. Discover how Inkpact can become an essential part of your marketing mix. Visit inkpact.com to learn more and to order your sample note card. Inkpact. Real human connection. Well, obviously, we've talked a lot about the ethical side of things. Community is another big part of it. I wonder whether you can talk a little bit about the community work that the business does and the store. Okay, it's not in Cornwall, but it's not a million miles away. I suppose Somerset is kind of culturally in the same part of the country. Oh, you're not uh, going to get away with that. Oh, okay, <laughs> right, I'll take that one back. I'll take that one back. It's in the southwest of the country, at least. How, how does that work? And in terms of where you would, you would look at stores going forwards, do they need to be in the sorts of locations where you feel there's there's an understanding of the brand ethos and the, the consumers that relate to what you're trying to do? So we do have an incredibly strong community. Um, not only 100,000 in, in social, but we have a frugi family. Uh, and that was actually created uh, back in the time to allow parents to just talk about real parenting. And I think when brands really want to create communities, those communities don't want to talk about the product. I mean, they, we do actually get a lot of photos of children in our products, as you can imagine, because they're beautiful products and people want to post their beautiful children. But I think you, know, you have to look beyond that in terms of what is the brand trying to serve. And the brand's trying to serve happy family adventures. So all of our discussion topics on the Frugi family, there are about 20,000 people who join it now, around top tips on parenting, places to go, things to do, sometimes just having a rant. That's also important when you're trying to raise children. So I think you know, for us, community has always been very genuine, very authentic. It hasn't been about trying to get people to spread word of mouth about the community. It's actually been there to serve them as their parenting, because we think that's important. Um, of course, it's, it started with a, a real Southwest leaning because that's where the brand was, but it's not due to us having different value sets to the rest of the country, it's more just to do with awareness. So actually now, from a digital point of view, the Frugi family is, is across the country. Um, and I also think, you know, as we start opening stores, uh, it, it's not even so much the location that's important, it's just creating the right space and environment that people feel that this store understands them and is there to help with their needs. And that's everything from children's edu education, fun things for children to do, takeaways for them to take home, reading corners, maternity, breastfeeding areas, everything that you have to think through, what does a family need if they're coming here to have fun and have a good time and learn about the brand? and touch and feel products, what does that space need to look like? So I think we've, we've had a strong community because we've always tried to put their actual parenting needs first before we think about actually our products or our clothing. What have you learned so far from it? Have there, has it thrown up any surprises? Uh, I think I've been surprised. I wasn't surprised at how popular it proved with our loyal customers. You would think, well, these loyal customers have seen a lot of our products. It's not that interesting to come and touch and feel. But I haven't been surprised. You know, we had a queue, obviously, on opening day. Uh, we had a lovely party. Uh, it was a very relaxed and fun environment. So I haven't been surprised at how warm the community has been and how frequently they come and engage. Um, I think it's, you know, I think I have probably been surprised at how much new footfall we have. Uh, so I think there is, again, it shows us there is a, a, a gap in the market. I think we are do, still doing something quite unusual to be uh, so rooted in ethical 
product sustainability and yet be so child centric so you know so focused on sort of fun and making it adventure ready uh, we've got lots of little secret you know hiding places within the, the product for, for children to make the most out of them um, so I, I guess I have been a little bit surprised at just how warmly you've been received by new people you've touched on that a few times so I wonder do you still feel that the ethical side of things is perhaps seen a bit too seriously there is a on the wider term sometimes people talk about it it, it all being doom mongering and that people do need positive messages even if it's just to kind of keep the momentum going and reinforce why they're doing things because you know everyone likes to have fun i totally agree i mean our brand catch line is love the planet you play on uh, and it's really that sense of play which is from for us the motivator uh, we work a lot with eco schools and with leaf which is part of keep britain tidy uh, and actually one of the shocking statistics that they told us is that the average child used to spend, young child, used to spend eight hours a week outdoors. That's now down to four hours and that's less than the average prisoner. So for us, if we can facilitate family adventures, if we can give people inspiration of things to do, if we can just provide them with a good day out, a fun day out, you know, that's super important to us. And I think, you know, especially when times are tough, people are looking for sort of positive moments. And, and if we as a brand can facilitate that, whilst also caring for the planet. I, I, I think that's a good combination, a good recipe. Oh, absolutely. And a very interesting and depressing statistic. Um, if I can turn away from the business and, and talk about you a little bit, I wonder whether you can tell me a little bit about some of the experiences that shaped you as the leader that you are today. Yes, I mean, I was at Procter & Gamble for 14 years, obviously a ginormous 150,000 employees. Um, after that, I went to Rafa. Uh, which is a British cycling brand and, and I worked for them setting up Asia uh, and then came back to the UK as, as CMO and CCO uh, and then obviously I've, I'm now in Frugi. So uh, I've been sort of between FMCG and then sort of technical apparel for my career. Uh, I think some of the things have really shaped me. Raffle was amazing for showing me the inner energy and power you can get internally from your staff and externally from your customers if you have a joint mission. Um, and our mission was to make cycling the most popular sport in the world, which people might think is ridiculous in the face of uh, NFL or basketball or whatever it might be. But actually, it, it made people go the extra mile because the more people we could get onto the bike and enjoying what we all found fabulous about cycling, by definition, that made a very tight community and the community obviously was very, very, very loyal and also very lucrative. Um, and I've really taken that into Frugi, which wasn't hard because we are a mission-based brand, but showing them how to make that super overt in both how we live as internal employees and how we engage with our external customers. You know, we've professed that our vision is to create a world without waste, which you know, might seem ridiculous for a tiny brand the size of ours, but actually the work that we've been doing around rental, around recyclable clothing, uh, around even how you use terminal fabric to make roll mats, which can go to charities. You know, we, we've, we've found this inner strength and energy from exciting people behind a mission. So I definitely think that's one of my key learnings as a, as a leader from my, my history. And, and Rafa is absolutely all about community, isn't it? I mean, it's world-class at that and has done a huge amount to engage its buyers in terms of feeling as if they're part of the brand. Yes, 100%. Um, I, I'm now, I was CMO and then CCO, uh, and I did sort of wake up every day um, 
with a lot of engagement from customers. So you can imagine they really hold you to account. When a customer loves a brand, you get a pretty hard time if you get something wrong, but it definitely keeps you on the straight and narrow. And I guess that was good practice for coming into a business based around ethical consumerism. Exactly, it was, because again, um, our customers are very, very good at holding us to account. If they feel that we're not holding, they want us to hold ourselves to high standards, our own high standards that we've set. So they really, really will sort of pull us up if they think that we're sort of not doing that. Well, I guess it's a bit of an obvious question, but how about the best and worst parts of being a CEO? Well, I, it's a cliche, but I think the best part is the worst part, which is the buck stops with you. Um, so I've loved, you know, I love the fact that I can see everything end to end. Uh, I've always worked, as I said, in products. So, and I love the tangibility of something going from a customer need through to a design, through to a supply partner, all the way through to our sort of, you know, our trade partners or even our direct sales through to, you know, customers' delight and enjoyment. But being able to make an impact throughout the chain uh, and being able to see everything as a CEO is, is wonderful. This is a wonderful sized company for being able to sort of wrap your arms around what's going on. Um, obviously, the, uh, the downside of it is, is always that the buck stops with you. Um, and also in tough times, you feel a huge amount of responsibility for people's livelihoods and making sure that we maintain our profitable growth uh, because we're responsible for our, you know, our internal customers and their well-being. We're obviously responsible for all our planetary concerns as well, but fundamentally as a CEO, you feel very responsible for your team uh, and keeping them on the journey. What's the best advice you've been given? Uh, the best advice I was given is to always focus on your core. So I think a lot of times it's very, very, once you have a strong brand, people diversify very quickly. Um, and as we've already alluded to, retail is pretty volatile. It has ups and downs. If you don't have a really strong core, um, obviously when you have those downs, at some point you can sort of chop arms and legs off of, if a brand sort of proliferated or a business has grown, you know, arms and legs, you can sort of chop some of those arms and legs off, but you have to have a really strong core at the center. Um, and I wouldn't say I've always got that right in my career. Uh, people who love growing businesses and love growing brands, love going after new things, so they want to do more stuff. Uh, and even at Raffa, we were a little bit guilty of that. You know, we, we, we created Raffa Travel, which was a wonderful part of the company that took people on some of their best cycling adventures. Um, but long story short, at, at some point it became uh, unprofitable and unmanageable for us as a business. You know, fundamentally we're an apparel business who were then sort of running a travel business on the side uh, and sadly we did close that part of the business so even as I go through my career whilst it's brilliant advice and I always try to stick closely to it there will always be that moment where you want to grow and you want to try new things that may work it may not work but as long as you've got a strong core if you have to cut that back and reel it in then the, the key business will remain and that's clearly important in terms of detail as well when you're talking about the store and a lot of things that you wanted to make sure were in it, clearly having that very very um, defined brand ethos meant that I guess the decisions were easier in some ways because you could understand what a, a Frugi store should be like because you understand what Frugi should be like. Exactly, it gives you a, a rule book, it gives you a set of parameters uh, and you, you know, we might have wanted to do lots of weird and wonderful things with that store, you know, physical space has endless possibilities, but you have to come back down to, you know, are, are we making material choices that really make sense for us as a brand? Are we staying true to the fact that we want to inspire and educate children? At some point in time, not much else matters after that. So it, it, otherwise it would become very easy for it to grow lots of arms and legs. And when you look around at other CEOs in charge of other businesses, whether that's in retail or outside of retail, are there any that you particularly look up to, either in the past or now? Uh, 
I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not brilliant at this sort of thing in that I don't have sort of a guiding light of somebody who I think is extraordinary. I think all the big guys, like the Tim Cooks, they're, they're literally athletes of the corporate world. I mean, I know what it takes having seen David Taylor at uh, Procter & Gamble, uh, and I'm amazed at their sense of scale and their ability to take huge organizations with them. Um, because I know how hard it can be at times looking after something which is 150 people. You'd think I'd be able to <laughs> keep under control quite easily. So I have a lot of respect for bigger business leaders because I, I know what it takes to do that. I tend to be much more inspired by the people that I get to work with much more directly. Um, and that's because I'm actually a big believer that you have to be yourself at work and you have to give a lot of yourself and be true to who you are. Uh, it's, it's quite hard to see that sometimes if you're looking at somebody in the distance and wondering, you know, wonder what Elon Musk really is like. But perhaps you shouldn't answer that. But <laughs> yeah, we won't get onto that on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, actually, so just recently we've appointed a new chair called Margaret McDonald, um, and she comes from Coast and Victoria's Secret. Uh, and I love that. I love learning. She's a very different style to me, but I actually appreciate more and look up more to people who've gone through it. She always says, you know, you're going to get a few war wounds as a CEO. And she said she's got plenty of her scars for herself. So I'll always look up to those people who are willing to take the time to sort of invest in my journey and bring me on. Uh, it's probably more where I'm at versus adulation of somebody that I may, may never meet. And finally, Sarah, from your point of view, what, what does success for you look like and, and what drives you on to the next stage of doing things? I mean, the one thing I would say is without profit at some point, the whole thing falls apart. So that profit is needed to invest in the next programs. It's needed to keep people employed and look after their livelihood. Um, so I, I still think obviously profitable growth is incredibly important. We'd be very naive to assume that that isn't a top priority. Uh, I think we're in a, an interesting sweet spot now because, as I said, I think we've got a lots of companies. Uh, I don't want to say jumping on the bandwagon because I think this is definitely a macro trend that's here to stay, but lots more companies becoming involved in sustainability. Uh, and that is quite enriching, it's quite rewarding because it sets some parameters by which you can operate uh, and still try to drive profitable growth whilst really thinking about your people and the planet and the impact. Um, so I, I'd say it's much more rewarding now because I think, as I said, people like True, our owners who are B Corp certified, will accept lower levels of growth as long as it's profitable growth if we're then seen to be doing the right things uh, and having the right impact on the planet. So I think that, you know, that is now much more rewarding for a leader. And that's an interesting balance, isn't it? It's perhaps a, a resetting of, of priorities and so not change them so much, but just to work out how they fit across the board. I'm going to ask you one last question and let's finish on a positive note. We know that retail's full of challenges, we know it's full of headwinds, but when you get up in the morning, apart from the view in Cornwall, what makes you feel optimistic? <laughs> well, I shouldn't underplay the view in Cornwall, it's quite extraordinary. Um, but it's quite funny you should say that because, I, you know, I do, as I said, I, I wake up with a view of the sea and there's probably nothing more sobering when you're thinking about planet than to be surrounded by nature. Um, but I get up in the morning for the people because I love the, this mission that we're on, uh, as I said, I've learned a lot about building a, a mission-based organisation. Uh, and I think if people wake up and they think they're there to reduce waste and stop the choking of the planet, there's a different level of energy. Uh, and that's what gets me up in the morning. That's fantastic. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking time to speak to the Retail Exchange and good luck with the business ventures. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.